Joan Corber Walker is president and CEO of the Arizona Bioindustry Association, AZ Bio, supporting one of the top emerging biotech clusters in the United States. Trained as an economist and a biotech investor herself, Joan is no stranger to pricing discussions. As the Build Back Better debate reached a fever pitch, all eyes turned to Arizona given the bill's focus on drug pricing and Senator Sinema's known support of the Arizona biotech sector. While Build Back Better is no more, the drug pricing debate is not going away anytime soon. And Joan, it's truly a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dwayne. It's great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you, too. And we're on your back porch here in a lovely <laughs> Phoenix day. Can't get much better than this, Joan. Thanks for your hospitality. Now, you've been president and CEO of AZ Bio for over a decade, and you've been participating in drug pricing discussions that now span three presidential administrations. Why do you believe we're here, and where do we think we're going? You know, the everyone looks at this, and it should be such a simple problem to solve, and it's not. Okay, We actually have three major problems. We have a budget problem. We have a population reality, and we have an out-of-pocket cost issue that is causing major problems for patients. And until we look at this holistically and try and find solutions that address all of those three problems simultaneously, we're going to be continue being in the situation where we're squeezing a balloon and we squeeze it on one side and it pops up on another. That is not solving the problems for patients. It's not solving our budget problem. And there's nothing we can do about our population problem. No, certainly not. Now, regarding the out-of-pocket costs, if you go back and look at the discussions and the debate, around the prescription drug medicine benefit in 2003, the Medicare Part D bill. Part of the discussion was they absolutely wanted people to have skin in the game, you know, so that there would be some sort of price, quote unquote, market control on those negotiations. I think I understand that intellectually, but the reality is now that ain't working and that we have an issue around that with regards to the out-of-pocket. What are you folks saying at AZ Bio around this issue? Uh, how, how do we deal with that specifically? Because that seems to be the, the pain point. You know, one of the things that everyone looks at is, oh, we had to put patient cost percentages on all of these patient copays because we want the patient to have skin in the game. Okay. No, they didn't. <laughs> they had a CBO problem. The concern was that at the time that we were working on Medicare Part D, that there were drugs that were coming on the market that they were concerned were going to drive up the price significantly. And many of them were lifestyle, quote unquote, lifestyle drugs for men. Okay. And so if all of the men suddenly wanted these expensive drugs, we would bankrupt the system. We could never do that. So the copays went in initially to try and keep that CBO score balance. And what we've seen over time is it's now become a mechanism for quote unquote managing patient usage. And what it's become is a way to torpedo patient adherence. Right. When patients don't take their medicine, they eventually get sicker, they eventually end up in the hospital, and they eventually end up costing us more money. It is the most backwards program that, and one of the major areas that we think should be fixed. If a patient's sick, they shouldn't have an out-of-pocket cost. They didn't choose to be sick. Right. So one of the things that people forget is at the time that that out-of-pocket was put in place, that 5% cap, the top-selling bills at the time were statins, 
pr- blood pressure drugs. We were talking three, four thousand dollars a dose, which seemed expensive at the time. But the bill was also there to motivate and stimulate, and in many ways subsidize or at least give uh, economic advantages to those folks working on, you know, stratified medicines, personalized medicines, uh, rare diseases, orphan drugs. So it was supposed to be an incentive structure to do that. Now, isn't it also a fact that that bill is also in many ways, been a victim of its own success because now we're getting those drugs and that 5% out of pockets being a real problem. It is, and I think it's also causing a major health equity problem. So, you know, we're sitting literally on a mountaintop looking out (laughs) over, you know, a a fairly well-to-do community. But even in our community, there are families that cannot afford their medicine. And when we talk about the quote-unquote expensive medicines, those are medicines that are either curing things that were previously incurable, or they're addressing rare diseases that never had anything in the first place. So we make those expensive, we put a limit on them that is outside of the patient's reach. Why are we innovating in a way that we can't help the people that we're innovating for? We need to address the financial innovation at the same time that we're addressing the health innovation. And it's time to do that. And that's what we believe. So over the last four years, if we look at this innovation we're talking about, get moving away from the pricing problems we're, we're digging into here. If we look at the actual innovation itself, 70% of mature biotech assets have been developed in the United States. The U.S. has become particularly dominant. Obviously, you're the head of AZ Bio. This is something that you obviously are working in. Mm-hmm. If we look at the NASDAQ specifically, the, uh, you know, the, the small cap stock market and the innovative stock market, before COVID hit in Q1 of 2020, 80% of all the listings on the NASDAQ were biotech stocks. Why has there been this movement of innovation from global innovation? Obviously, Europe was dominant before. Why is it really centralizing uh, on the West Coast here, mostly California, but also certainly other states are expanding, and the East Coast, Massachusetts? Why did the U.S. become so dominant in these two centers? Because you follow the money. Right. I mean, it's it, we're talking about an industry that is heavily dependent on long-term, high-stakes projects. And we're not talking, you know, an IT app that you're going to pop out for $100,000 and you're going to have to spend $10 million to market to get market penetration. You're talking about a life-saving or life-changing therapy that could toss anywhere between 2 and $5 billion before you get to the end game. And then any point along the way, it could fail. So you have to have a very well-established, savvy, Um, market that understands risk. And so you tend to get concentrations of that. And so we've seen that in Northern California, in Massachusetts, and more, more recently in San Diego, and we're developing it here in Arizona. Picking up on that, um, about how Arizona is developing, you know, Steve Case, who was one of the co-founders of AOL, He was quoted in some research he's been doing. He's obviously a well-known venture capitalist. You know, last year was one of the first times that there were the majority of the funds didn't go to California or Massachusetts. um, The numbers have dropped from 50% to 30% in California. And the places that really gained, there were five cities in particular. And one of those five 
was Phoenix, where you are. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you've had something to do with that. How much growth are you seeing? I know it's from a low base, but how much activity are you seeing, and why do you think you're getting such a competitive advantage that you're starting to get a look now with some of this early money? So I think it's a combination of things. One is that, um, you know, in Steve Case's Rise of the of the Rest, which is his concept of there is more opportunity outside of the major markets in California and Massachusetts. But he's not the only person. I mean, Peter Thiel just left the Bay Area. I mean, Elon Musk. I mean, you're seeing things happening. So they're looking... So Musk is a little bit different. Musk is looking at operating costs. He has moved from just general investments into massive manufacturing. Yeah, of course. And so when you look at um, manufacturing in particular, which is where we're really working to bring more manufacturing back to the United States, it boggles my mind that any corporation in today's age would expand a high-technology company in California or Massachusetts for the following reasons. Number one, they are high-tax states. Number two, in the case of California, it is geologically unstable, which means that if you're developing very (laughs) high-tech, sensitive, whether it's medicines or computers, it doesn't make sense to put it there. And I lived there for a number of years. I know. Um, In Massachusetts, you have all of the weather things that are continuously impacting the East Coast. So if your job from a manufacturing standpoint is to bring up high-quality manufacturing sites that are going to be able to run 24-7, you want to go to someplace like Arizona, which is why Intel is expanding. There are more Intel fabs being built in Arizona than any place else in the world why you see that expansion. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, or TSMC, is the largest manufacturer of wafers in the world. Their first plant outside of Taiwan is being built here in Arizona. It's a $12 billion project right down the street from where Mayo Clinic just bought 228 acres. And you've got a lot of, and I want to get about to that, I want to touch on that Mayo Clinic situation, Mm -hmm. definitely. Picking up on what you're talking about, the manufacturing, you do have a lot of diagnostic companies. You do have mm-hmm. some, you know, biotech manufacturing more on the supply side, not necessarily on the cutting edge innovation side. Do you see that as an opportunity to try and build here? So I would say, well, first of all, on the medical device side, we have been building here for decades. Yeah. Um, Medtronic is here. The majority of the electronics that go into all of those Medtronic devices get designed right here in Arizona. Um, Roche Tissue Diagnostics is their global headquarters for tissue diagnostics is here in, in Oro Valley, Arizona. Um, so we, we are seeing that. But I think the bigger opportunity is on new technology. So when we look at things like cell and gene therapy, that is going to require new infrastructure, new technologies, new workforce, all of the things that spawn new industries. And so um, Arizona is perfectly positioned for that right now. And I'd l- this is where the, the Mayo Clinic expansion comes in. Because Mayo just invested in 300 acres of greenfield development specifically for a biotech incubator for technologies they want to utilize within the Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Mayo is ranked number one, usually, on rankings for treatment. Some, you know, Harvard may disagree with you. I know we have some Harvard listeners. I'm sorry, Martin, if you're there. <laughs> but, but the point is, you know, Mayo is a very strong you know, competitor, and now they actually want to invest in developing things here, not in Rochester, not with University of Minnesota, but here. How are you guys exploiting that? How are you developing that in tandem? Well, you know, I, and I have to be careful what I say, because I never <laughs> want to step outside. So 
Um, we are very lucky at AZ Bio to have Rafael Fonseca um, as a member of our board of directors and at leading that innovation project and all the innovation work at, at Mayo is, is great. Um, and we recently had a conference with all of the Mayo leadership and leaders from all over the world looking at these new technologies and how we can build on them. Mayo believes in their three shields, right? It's the shield of the patient, it's the shield of education, it's the shield of innovation. And so Arizona, with its um, very well-trained workforce, its amazing clinical partners, and its strong university partnerships, was a natural place for them to put that. And oh, by the way, we have land. Yeah. Try finding some in California and Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. Well, where you can find it, but that's not going to cost you. And it's long. a lot warmer here than it is in Minnesota. <laughs> well, that, I'm sorry. Yeah, it is. It, it's certainly not minus 41. I yeah. can tell you that. So, okay, we just met with the health committee of the Arizona State Legislature. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interest in this. How do you get these pieces aligned to actually start getting some you know, things broken here and not have the inertia? How do you break over that and actually start moving some real development and some early stage R&D on the clinical side? How do you get to, how do you break that through so, that barrier? So our clinical partners are actually amazingly strong. And Arizona continually is growing up in the number of clinical trials that are done here every year. Um, interestingly, St. Joseph's Hospital, which is affiliated with the Barrow Neurological Institute, is in the entire Dignity Network, the number one hospital for clinical trials. So there's a lot of that work that's being done here. The question is, how do you take an idea that's developed in the lab or at a university and get it to the clinic in the first place? And that takes a level of risk management and investment that is nascent here. It is just starting to grow as compared to places like Silicon Valley where it's the old guard that does that. Um, But the old guard is figuring out that they don't have to live in Silicon Valley, and that's why Gavin Newsom's getting nervous. Yeah, but at the same time, Gavin Newsom is trying to pass this bill that's going to double state taxes and double California capital gains. Do you think that that's an opportunity to try and, you know, capture some of that? Is that going to muddy the water so much that finally a lot of these VCs are going to start thinking about moving out? You know, there's been capital gains bills in California. I I wish I could say, absolutely, pack your bags, boys. (laughs) Come on over to Arizona. We're ready for it. You can say it, Joan. You can certainly say it. Um, I'm telling you right now, we're having an investment conference. It's September of 2022, (laughs) and you are all invited. Um, but the point is that, um, you know, to be fair, California has been trying to pass bills like that, the one we're talking about for several sessions now, and they haven't gone through. But the problem is, is every time you have that discussion, okay, you make more people nervous and they're going to leave before it goes through. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to the people in Sacramento because every time they do something like that, they send more people to me. Well, and I can say what was interesting today in speaking to the legislators we spoke mm-hmm. with, you know, we had a pretty full house. There seems to be an understanding that there needs to be support from the state legislature. I mean, obviously you don't want giveaways, but there seems to be an understanding, okay, we don't want to screw this up either. There seems to be an understanding that we need to work together productively. We need to build on, if there's one thing we understand in Arizona, it's building. Okay. We are the building center of the universe. <laughs> we have been building so fast to keep up with our growing population. So 
they understand that when you start to invest in something, you have to keep investing it. You have to keep building on it. So over the last two decades, we've invested over $23 billion of public and private money to build up what is today our healthcare and bioscience sector. And so our legislators, our private investors, our philanthropists, and our industry all know that we have to work together to build something amazing, and it's working. The challenge that we've seen is, you know, there are times when we have gaps. So I'm, I'm really envious of Massachusetts. They have 24 Research One universities. <laughs> we have two. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the two happens to be ranked the number one university for innovation six years running. No one else has ever won the award. Um, but it's still, you know, we've got some catch up to do there. We needed more university infrastructure. And so, you know, working with the business community and the science community and the education community, we made that case to the legislature. And in 2017, the legislature allocated another billion dollars for university research infrastructure. Now we're looking at the next gap we have to solve, and that's early stage funding for these nascent businesses. And that's, that's the conversation that we're having this year. Does Build Back Better or some of those parts coming back put a lot of this at risk? This has come up in th- the last three presidential administrations. It does not make sense. As a matter of fact, the Republicans on the Senate Finance Committee this week sent a letter um, that basically said, this does not work. Do not do this. You will destroy innovation. Um, What we have to look at is um, anytime you send a signal, whether it's a state, a governor like Gavin Newsom, or the federal government saying, we are going to change the risk parameters on you. It puts an investor in the position where they can't do the risk-reward calculations. And so they're going to think twice about writing that check. When we look at other industries, because you know what? VCs do not have to put their money in life science and healthcare. Absolutely not. And there are a lot of other industries that have much more predictable risk curves. So anytime you layer more risk on top of it, whether it's at the state, federal, or EU level... Um, you run the risk of scaring off that investment. If the investment dollars don't come in, the cures don't happen. It's, um, we like to call it the cleanest dirty shirt in the hamper fallacy. You know, California is sort of acting in a way right now, I think policy-wise, that they're the cleanest dirty shirt in the hamper no matter what happens. It's going to still be okay. At a certain point, you just don't wear the shirts anymore. You walk away from the hamper. And I, my fear is that that's what's occurring. One of the things that's in the bill, I think, which is really striking this time, which is a little different, is this idea that if this bill is passed and you decide to move, you still are liable for 10 years. So it's not like you're really, you know, in making an investment, it's like you're marrying the company and have to pay an alimony. So California's actually had clawback positions like that. Mm-hmm. They're just expanding it. So um, actually, there were some very famous case law going back several decades where it was an Arizonan that was in the film industry that actually was writing scripts for California mm-hmm. and they tried to attach his wages because... Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so this has been going on. I, I don't just pick on Gavin Newsom on this. This has been going on for quite some time in California. And those clawback provisions are very real. So, um, again, if I'm starting the next Amgen, the next Genentech, or something beyond anything that we've envisioned so far... The last place that I'm going to put it right. is someplace like California or even Massachusetts. Looking more broadly at, at the cost structure of healthcare, 
given all the heat that's been mm-hmm. on biotech, particularly over the last, you know, 10 years specifically, but really the last three or four years in particular since the Trump administration, if we look at the total cost curve of healthcare broadly, f- biopharmaceuticals have been somewhere between 13, 14% and mm-hmm. often declining. Um, recently, the CBO even came out with a report saying that they've actually been declining on the front end. So this has been pretty constant, about 13%. Meanwhile, hospital costs have been blowing up exponentially. Do you think that the hospitals now are starting to get a little bit more heat? And is this going to potentially change the discussion? I think the discussion needs to change, period. Yeah. Um, because, as I said before, until we look at this problem holistically, we are not going to solve the problem. The hospitals have not given a, gotten a pass, right? We crippled hospitals with a lot of the e, uh, a lot of the electronic requirements that we put in during the Affordable Care Act, right? And the requirements that they had for electronic reporting from the small provider who can't survive anymore in that's, their practice. That's why we've had so much consolidation. And rolled it yeah. up it is driving the consolidation. So we are seeing that. On the other side of it, we also have to keep in mind that there are now provisions where, you know, you do the surgery the first time and the patient comes back because you didn't do it right, you don't get paid. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so you know, the hospitals have not gotten a co- complete free pass. But I think that what we have to look at is how do we keep people healthy, number one. If we improve the health of, of the population, we will lower everything. How do we keep people healthy? But beyond that, how do we look at the system in such a way that the system operates optimally? And, you know, you and I talked about the fact that I spent 20 years of my career in the electronic supply chain, which is top of mind of everyone right now because it's not performing. But um, when I was in the electronic supply chain, we used to say that healthcare was about 20 years behind us. Well, now 20 years later, they're hitting the same multi-layer value chain cost problem that we have which is that in order to optimize operations, different players in the supply chain are outsourcing different functions. Each of that of those outsourced partners then lay another level of profit on top of that. So what you then see is where it used to be that a manufacturer would sell to a hospital. Now the manufacturer is selling to the PBM who's operating through the distributor who is moving through the pharmacy who is then supplying either the patient or the hospital system. There are so many levels of overhead in that that it starts to become an unmanageable system. And when people look at our system as compared to some of the other countries around the world, they say, well, how could that be? Well, you know, it's very interesting. And I'll use this example because it's public information. Mm -hmm. So, um, Johnson & Johnson actually has, uh, through their Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is people that deliver the vaccines. Beers of Belgium. Uh, all right. <laughs> um, so they have been looking at and reporting publicly how much of the dollar of their spend is going to these various layers in the supply chain over and above the wholesale acquisition price. And so the commercial pay- payers, so the, the PBMs, mm-hmm. they take 24% is their slice. Okay. Then you have the 340B program, which is very, very necessary in some places. And in some others, you know, there's been some overlap and discussion, which we're not going to go into here. That's 18%. Then on top of that, you have Medicare that takes their cut. Of, yes, Medicare doesn't negotiate, but they do take their cut. That's mm-hmm. another 15. There's a discount, yeah. Right. 
community clinics get a discount on top of that of 12. Um, and then you have, you know, some other miscellaneous things. It's another, you know, 12, 13%. So when you start to look at all of the costs that are getting layered on top of it, it's because everybody has passed a piece of the value chain on to someone else. And then that person needs to be compensated. So that's what's driving our costs up. And if you look at the net price, the net price has been going down mm-hmm. over years. Now, some people say that that's generics. Well, on the pharmaceutical side, right, and, and the best way to break it down, right, pharmaceuticals is chemistry, right? Mm-hmm. Take one of this, two of that, combine it together, you always get the same thing, okay? Biologics are biology. They mm-hmm. are living things. They are less predictable. They are a lot more expensive to manufacture. They're also more powerful. Mm-hmm. And so as we start to look at these things and we start to loop, lump in the cost of pharmaceuticals, which has been dropping dramatically mm-hmm. over the years, especially with the generic process um, or pressures. And then you look at the biologics, which are solving problems that were not solvable before and yes they are more expensive but if you look at the total cost of treating that patient over time solving the problem actually solves spending in the system over the cost of the patient for a long time the challenges we have to come up with as we look at the system holistically is and, and you know get ready for this i'm going to defend the insurers <laughs> wow so uh, hang on let me they, they got the wind out of me here for a second. okay <laughs> all right go ahead but i'm think interested about it. okay <laughs> so so let's look at something like sma okay? mm-hmm. so this is a disease that in its worst form was highly debilitating um it affected babies right and many of those babies did not live to their teens and the ones that did were dealing with a lifetime of not only suffering in many cases, but also crippling expense for their families in the healthcare system. So now we have a biologic, it's actually a gene therapy mm-hmm. that can cure SMA if we catch it early enough. Mm-hmm. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when you compare that expense to the overall cost of the patient, it's cheap. So. So the question is, if I'm an insurer, and right now I insure that family, I pay for that $2 million, and then the family's dad goes to another job, and now somebody else is going to insure them, and I paid all the money, and the other insurance company gets the benefit. That is not fair for the insurers, and we have to really work on that. And I really want to do a shout-out to... Um, Representative Schweikert from Arizona, who has been working diligently on this project now for several years to find an equitable solution that puts patients first, but also doesn't disrupt the system, whether it's a private or a government payer. Yeah, and spinal muscular atrophy is a, is a great example of a, a an orphan drug that works extremely well. That's that. Let's face it, this, the market's incredibly small and incredibly mm-hmm. thin. So if you've spent four, five billion dollars on overall development and you've only got 30, 40 patients a year in a certain market, it, you gotta you gotta make the math work, unfortunately. Yeah. But if we look at the debate around Savaldi, for example, mm-hmm. Gilead's drug for hepatitis C, you know, the people went apoplectic at the eighty thousand dollar price tag when the cost of a patient going in getting the alternative treatment pathway, the interferons, things like that. You know, you were looking at over $200,000 a cost per patient. 
but yet no one, people wanted to call that immoral. They were saying that the pricing of this drug was immoral. I mean, the reality is very few people see the debate in the way we're discussing it, right. which makes sense. But intrinsically, because of the way the payer system is set up, the person who pay, you have a free rider problem. The person who's paying for that drug is not the person who's seeing the clinical long-term benefit, unless you're in like a Kaiser or something like that. Unless you're in a government insurance plan. Yeah, exactly. Which, by the way, the majority of Americans already are. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> but not necessarily if they had hepatitis C, but if they're over 65, definitely. Yeah. What do you think are the solutions then, Joan, if you had a way to cure this stuff? I mean, how do we deal with this then if you could make one implementation like right now? Well, we better figure it out pretty quickly because SMA is a very small population. Hemophilia is a much bigger population. Alzheimer's is huge. Okay. Uh, You know, we don't know how we're going to do Alzheimer's yet. We do know how that hemophilia is getting really close. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have those drugs probably within a year to a year and a half. So we have to solve this problem pretty quickly. Um, One of the things that's been looked at is to create some kind of a high-risk pool where you could bond because if you look at a population like hemophilia you're going to have a huge bubble of patients and same with same thing we saw with hep c right huge bubble of patients that want to be addressed early and then over time the, the percentage of new patients that are coming is relatively small and manageable so some of the things that have been looked at or played with is can we create a like a healthcare bond like an annuity fund annuity, or something? Annuity, something that would yeah. stretch over time that then everybody would play into and everyone would, would benefit from. So that was, you know, that high-risk pool concept, which has existed in auto insurance for years. Yeah. Um, so so some of that has been looked at, and those have been conversations, you know, in D.C. where, where they're going to have to make those decisions. That's not a state um, solution. I think the other thing that we are seeing and that we're going to have to come to terms with is that, um, the voters, the people, are going to demand access to these medicines when a crippling or life-threatening disease is facing them. They don't care what it costs at that point. Yeah. They can get it. Now, interestingly, we also have to look at the health equities situation, which is, um, and, and right to try is one that originated in Arizona. Mm-hmm. The whole right to try concept was written as a white paper out of the Goldwater Institute. Yeah, it's a libertarian initiative that came out of uh, the Goldwater, Goldwater Institute. Absolutely. And spread across the country. You know, I've, I've always looked at that. And, and by the way, it was my job to point out where the shortfalls were in that, mm-hmm. um, which was not a popular position to take. <laughs> no, I can um, imagine in this town. Yeah, yeah that well, might be or, or with patients, <laughs> because if you're desperate, you're desperate. Absolutely. But the the biggest thing that bothered me, well, there was the issue of when it was at the state level before it became federal law, that you were making promises you couldn't keep because yeah. you could say you could do it, but they really couldn't. But but the other issue, and this now exists with the federal law, is there's no obligation for anybody to pay for this but the patient. So if I'm rich enough to pay for whatever it is, that's good. And if I'm not... I'm so sorry. But isn't that the system now that you're kind of getting in Europe? I mean, and this is, unfortunately, this is the apex of where that system leads because, you know, it's you have 530, 540 days delay in France now for new medicines. And what you're fi- finding is that the families that have the money are the ones flying over to the States to get private treatment. And, you know, they're leaving in large. Half the countries in Europe don't have a lot of the new, you know, CAR-T therapeutics yet. I, I hate to tell you this, but there are people in Canada that can't get the, the same medicines that we can get in the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. 
So, you know, Canada is a real interesting balance because on one side you have many states that are saying our people should be able to, able to go over to Canada and buy Canadian medicines and bring <laughs> them back here because they're cheaper. That's a, that that, I, that argument is intellectually illiterate because Canada's is cheaper because they do not have the U.S. economics. As soon as U.S. buyers go in and volume, then it, you're adopting U.S. economics. It makes no sense. But the other thing is, is there are a lot of innovative medicines that are not available in of Canada course. yet because they don't fit the Canadian model from a pricing perspective. So you you have to really weigh a very delicate balance, and it's very hard to do that. Now you asked me how are we getting around you know this. I think one of the things that we have done really poorly as an industry is telling our story to the people who need to hear it. That's not the politicians. That's the patients. It's the voters. It's the people that are in, you know, in the neighborhoods around us. They need to understand the work that's being done. And what they see from us very often on TV is buy my drug, buy my drug, buy my drug, right? Or a politician standing or up basically saying, saying bad drug, bad yeah, drug, bad drug. You're the industry tying the late the damsel in distress to the right. railroad tracks with the black hat right. and the mustache. And know? so instead, let's take that stuff, set it aside, and start focusing on what are we doing to make life better for people. If people start to understand that we are the industry that literally exists to extend and improve their life, we might not be facing as many challenges as we're facing today. And so here in Arizona, um, we actually have what we call the Health Innovation Spotlight Campaign. We have partnered with ABC 15 and their affiliates. Um, and we have a series of one-minute spotlights that talk about a health challenge and an Arizona company that's working to, to, to address that challenge. Most of these products are not even on the market yet. We're yeah. not selling anything. We've had over 2 million Arizonans see those spots in the last eight months. So we're starting to raise the conversation so that when people start talking about the biosciences, it's not this abstract concept. It's something that really helps me. Okay, It's not... A man and a woman in a bubble bath holding hands as the sun goes down. It's, hey, this is a problem. And, hey, here's how somebody's working to solve it. Yeah. If we start changing the narrative of the conversation, people will hopefully join us in that. Those are the people that vote for the people that are in Washington that are shaping our future. Mm -hmm. So if we start changing the narrative at the ground level and moving it up, into those public policy discussions, you know, people have come to me and said, your delegation, your Arizona delegation really seems to get it. Why does your delegation on both sides of the aisle? And the answer to that is that we are a community where we all work together. They have been to the Translational Genomics Research Institute. They come visit our little companies. They walk the hallways of our incubators. They meet with our patients. And they understand the challenges they that we face in making these hopes and dreams of patients reality. And so when we start having the economic conversation and, you know, they know that I'm not going to pull any punches. I don't have a dog in this fight, Okay. Easy Bio represents the hospitals. 
We represent the drug companies. We represent the universities. We represent patient groups. We represent economic development agencies. Everybody's got a seat at the table, except the payers, because quite frankly, they've been invited and they never came. So, um, but everybody else has a seat at the table. And so when we start looking at solutions at the state level, that's the conversation we want to have. And maybe if we can then start to migrate that thinking from the Arizona delegation to the chambers that they work within, we'll get more done. I think our senior senator right now, that's probably the number one priority she has is that we work together to get things done. Well, I tell you, from our experience today with the state legislators, it sounds like you've got a great opportunity here and they're extremely supportive. They are. Um, they have a lot of things they have to balance. Of we course. Have, you know, like any legislator does or any member of Congress does. But we also understand in Arizona that we build great things. Mm-hmm. And so we've laid the foundation, and each year we need to layer one more level on top of it until we reach what is, is our vision as an organization, which is that Arizona will be a top 10 bioscience state. And it better happen in my lifetime. And you're pushing to get a early stage fund together, a public-private fund. We are. So um, AZ Advances um, is a um, collaboration between AZ Bio and the Opportunity Through Entrepreneurship Foundation. Um, and it's specifically designed to address that gap in early stage funding that we see in Arizona and, quite frankly, in other flyover states. If this works here, it could work in other places. Um, but the concept is, um, and we, through the generosity of a family office in New York, we did a three-year best practices study. And we pulled the best of each thing. So I'm stealing from Europe. Okay. <laughs> I, th- so the goal is to create an endowment starting off at $200 million that will fund early stage life science innovation in Arizona forever at a rate starting out of $10 million a year. That will allow for early stage funding, some workforce development, some other things that need to be done. Um, it's hard, you know, especially during COVID. Yeah, of course. It's been very hard to raise a new endowment for a totally novel thing. Um, and it's very interesting. We had to do some financial creativity just to try and come up with new ways. So a friend of mine said, well, did you look at crypto? <laughs> and I'm like, crypto? Are you kidding me? You know, I'm an economist. We don't do crypto. <laughs> and he's like, well, I want you to talk to some friends of mine in D.C. So we actually um, started working with an organization in Washington, D.C. called The Giving Block that works with some very credible charities, including the American Cancer Society, World Wildlife, etc., to accept crypto donations. I'm like, okay, well, I'll experiment with this. So we got it all set up. We have all of our mechanisms through the 501c3 to accept cryptocurrency. My board, I think, thought I was a little touched. (laughs) Um, I can tell you that the largest donation that we received from anyone in 2021 was a gift that we received on December 31st of 2021 from a crypto investor in Milan, Italy, who had never heard of us, simply was reading about what we're trying to accomplish and respected it. 
That's cool. Single largest donation that we got in the entire year. How far along are you for hitting your target right now? So we are just starting the major capital campaign. So we are, um, we have some restrictions because of the, the way the government funding works. Yeah. Where we can be building the concept, but we can't be deploying capital until right. then. So our grassroots fundraising is is right on target where we thought it would be. Um, we're having conversations with the legislature. Yes, I heard them today. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, you know, and those are always challenging. But um, as I said, Arizonans understand that when there is a great opportunity and you seize that opportunity and then you build on it incrementally each year, we get great results. I think there's a great opportunity here from what I've seen, Joan. And uh, again, I think you've done exceptional work. Um, I think you know you're, you played a very important behind-the-scenes role on Build Back Better, and uh, it's been great talking to you. I thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's it's been fun, and y'all are welcome to come back to Arizona anytime, especially Arizona Bioscience Week. <laughs> when is that again? The week Get your of plug it, Joe. Get the plug week it. of <laughs> September 25th to September 30th, 2022. It's going to be beautiful in Arizona. Come visit. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for your time. It's been great. Thanks. Bye bye.